You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Father Paul. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Father Mark. Good morning. So, Father Paul, you've spoken a lot about the importance of shepherdism for understanding how the Bible works and what the Bible is doing. Not that the shepherds of the Near East wrote the Bible, but that the writers of the Bible understood shepherdism and employed the mechanisms of shepherdism in the biblical narrative. So today we thought it'd be very interesting to ask you to talk about shepherdism in greater Syria. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, this is really at the heart of scripture itself. As I said time and again, that shepherds would not have been able to write, let alone write this vast literature. The people who did it were erudite people of the region of Mesopotamia. But it's like writers and poets, you know, they could speak the language of a certain setting and express it. And it is very important, and this is our point of discussion, or this is the way I understand it today, that the hearer, the reader, has to get to the point to make the effort not to laud the writers and so on about their ideas, because how could the hearer understand the ideas of the writer in this book, not just the writer? In this book, he's speaking. It's like a writer in a city that writes a book about the Wild West. You need a writer to do that. Take movies, you know, you have people who are knowledgeable. But the setting is different. And I would like to point to the centrality of this setting because, number one, you have it. Everybody of the main characters in the book of Genesis, our four parents, if you like, are shepherds. All of them are shepherds. Even, and I stress this in my book, when they are in Egypt within a full-fledged civilization, repeatedly the text says that they said to Pharaoh that we are shepherds. Number two, Moses was a shepherd. And number three, very importantly, God led his people through the wilderness. Only a shepherd does that. You didn't have buildings, just the people were moving and they tried to find water and obviously they died at the end, but during these 40 days. Now, that is very important and the most striking text from this perspective in my view, is the first verse of Psalm 80 that is just two chapters after our famous Psalm 78, where you hear at the beginning something totally not only unexpected but unacceptable with the people. Because it sounds, as you're telling the emperor of Constantinople, that ultimately his value lies in the fact that he's a shepherd. Listen to this. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who leadest Joseph like a flock, which we heard in Psalm 78. But then suddenly, in the same verse, thou 
who art enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. So this writer is addressing God in his temple. And in another place, that should be enough, it speaks about leading the people who come to serve him as a flock. It is unbelievable. It is as though the scriptural God is essentially a shepherd. Notice, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who leadest Joseph like a flock, and only as opposition Thou who art enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth in your glory. Now, the second point is that one has to be careful not to read backwards and apply, for instance, and I would like to take my time on that, the word civilization to shepherdism, meaning like my hearer is expecting from now on that I would defend shepherdism as a different kind of civilization. Well, my take on that is that civilization is linked to the word city in Latin. It's a citizenship. But the trouble in shepherdism that there is no city, there is no enclosures, there are no walls. You cannot have a literature because to have a literature you need to have a library. There is nothing of the kind in shepherdism. That is why I would like to begin by saying that shepherdism is a way of societal life. But our arrogance, you know, in all civilizations, is that we link the word civilization with society. But society is a word from Latin and Greek. It means only a brotherhood, a relationship, a interconnection, a family relationship that does not need the walls. Let's say everybody knows in your area that the Benton family, the Bulos family, live in this house at this address. But this family can spend a full day at the park on Sunday. It is this that I'm trying to underscore, that you have to follow and understand the interconnection between the members of this smaller societal unit in the park. And the park in the Bible is, if you like, the wilderness, the Syrian wilderness, and we talked about that. Now, before going into detail, I would like to point to this text, and I would like all my hearers to write it down and read it once a year and hear it in the original. Yet his bow in Genesis 49:24 remained unmoved, His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Notice, the mighty one of Jacob. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. But the trick here is that the rock of ISV in the original is the pebble, the stone of Israel. Because the rock reflects a mountain, reflects a city. Bad translation. Actually, very bad translation. And the only translation I was checking on that this morning corresponds to the original is the Vulgate. The Greek goes in a different direction. I don't want to go down that road, you know. But in the Latin, Permanus Potentis Jacob, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, And then in the pastor shepherd, 
egressus est lapis Israel, lapis is stone. So there is cunning here. I mean, the authors knew what they wanted to say, that the powerful one, if I combine Psalm 80 verse 1 and Genesis 49, 24, is repeatedly injecting the idea that the authors are setting the scriptural God as a leader of a flock, and that cannot happen except in the wilderness. Which means, and this is what Jeremiah captured, that you are following not something written, but it is the voice of the leader. In Jeremiah, God says, well, when did I ask you to do this and that and that and that? Obviously, all of us will say, but you said it in the book of Moses. But God continues, no, I ask you to obey my voice. And that's why I have been sending you generations of prophets. Now, I know already the reaction, especially of my brethren in the faith, the authors. Ah, you see, he's stressing the oral tradition. And so, no, he's stressing the oral tradition that has been inscribed in scriptures. Remember, the authors of the Bible are not shepherds, could not have been shepherds. But the voice of God, it is it that is heard in the biblical grammata. That's why in my commentary on 2 Corinthians, I made clear that grammata is not in opposition to the spirit because the spirit is to be found in the grammata of scripture. Again, John chapter 20. And that's the difficult thing. If it is important, we can revisit that. You're obviously hearing a written text, which could not have been written in the wilderness. But you are hearing a story that applies only against that background, the societal life of shepherdism. It's like someone writing a book about the Middle Ages. I mean, only scholars can do that. But then if you write a play on that, you are putting a different setting. Notice in the plays in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, what is the setting? Where is this happening? And this wilderness, the authors knew about it. I say again in my book, it's not a place they created a utopia like Narnia. No. It was right there in their backyard, or as I say, in their front yard, which is the Syrian wilderness. Now here I would like to remind my hearers that the Syrian wilderness is huge. It's the northern part of the Syro-Arabian desert. If you look just at a map, physical map, and you will see that it extends from the mountains of Ararat to the southern part of Saudi Arabia. It's one stretch throughout Syria, Jordan, and then the actual Saudi Arabia is one stretch. And until now, people coming from that area know that shepherds can go through all this area with no problem. I mean, can you imagine someone stopping a shepherd at the border? I mean, the shepherds knew where to go in order not to go through the immigration authorities. This is the setting now. In this setting, 
Unfortunately for polytheism and the divine council, you do not have a council. You have only the shepherd, one voice. Now, the shepherd on the side may consult with his helpers, but his helpers do not have the same position that he has, because ultimately it's his authority that counts. Why is this important? Because when the shepherd is out of the setting of the oasis, more often than not, I mean, if the flock is large, he may have two helpers, but he could be on his own with his sheep. At any rate, which I also stress in my book, the hearer is not even a member of the council. In other words, as hearers, we can only function as sheep. And the sheep, as I say in my book, the most it can do is to say, bah, that's it. So all this issue that I keep hearing time and again about the free will of the human being to decide and so on, it has no place in the Bible. And actually, the trouble of Adam is that he was lured by his wife through the serpent to assume that they can sit down and discuss among themselves the issue of God and what he said and what he did and so on. No, God is a shepherd. And I spoke on this in another podcast, how already early on God walks in the garden and the verb that is used in Hebrew is that he walks as a shepherd. So the setting of the Syrian desert is a total setting that can stand on its own until now. The shepherd society of this entire region is still the same society mentality-wise as the society referred to in Scripture. And any not necessarily professor, anyone knowledge in literature would understand that, that one has to understand the setting. That's what it is called. Actually, I remember in the plays that we were supposed to read and learn and so on, they say this encounter took place in the vestibule outside the chambers of the king between that person and that person. The author has to write this. In other words, they were by themselves, and they were plotting something. You cannot say, but nowadays we could have heard them, you know, because we have cameras and so That's not the point. The point is that the author is pointing to the situation he wants to point to. Now, let me go back. In this setting of the desert, you have only the voice of God that is reflected in your writing as we see very early in the book of Exodus. So no one can say about living tradition because the origin of that voice is always that same person. So if you like the so-called philosophical eternity of the scriptural God is not so much philosophical that it is so God is eternal. No, the scriptural God is eternal because he is in a scripture and scripture essentially is eternalized because it cannot change technically something written and it cannot be amended, unfortunately, unlike the constitution of the United States. It cannot be amended. 
its book that is written again the end of John chapter 20. So this stress on the essentiality of the voice of the shepherd for the sheep is real, actual, real in the original Latin sense, realis, which means corresponding to the res, which is the subject matter. It is so. And here I cannot but end with the ultimate obedience, total, full obedience. And the Bible has so much trouble with that because the text was written, obviously, to civilized people. It was not written to the shepherds. It was written to the colleague of the people living there. The authors had trouble to enforce this total, let me call it, blind obedience but i don't like the word blind because the sheep can see but it's deaf obedience meaning that they have only the voice of their shepherd which they recognize my sheep know my voice and this total obedience was so difficult that the author had to come up with a story showing that time and again the people were disobedient and at the end they expressed the hope the hope that someday this scriptural God will raise someone like the famous servant of Isaiah 53 who would be dumb as a sheep. He did not open his mouth, yet the will of the Lord was to bruise him for the sake of others. And here all my readers have really to understand the importance of that passage about the test, the temptation of Jesus in the garden at the end, where Luke describes him as having sweat blood. In other words, he had to make the decision to go for his father's will against his wishes. So obedience does not mean, and I would like to end on this because that's the whole issue, does not mean to agree. Obedience does not mean, oh, I agree with you, Father Mark, so I'm going to obey you. But this does not mean that I'm obeying you. Obedience is, per definition, a blind slash death obedience. I know my hearers already are not happy with this because they would like to implement the freedom of choice. Well, you have no choice in shepherdism because your choice, if you decide to be on your own, is to become, and I'm referring to the Bible, as an obed. Obed means going unto destruction. Again, it is not enough to understand that it's shepherdism. It has to be Syrian desert shepherdism, as I said in another podcast. A sheep in a flock in Scotland can live few days on its own because you have trees and shades and rivers and water and food in the Syrian desert. No, you are led by the shepherd remember that psalm, into green pastures. You cannot find it on your own, the green pastures and the oasis. So I really need to thank you for having proposed this topic, and I hope that my hearers will make the effort 
to understand that this is not whether they like what I'm saying or not and send a group of people to go today to the Syrian desert and figure out whether it's still the same. But you have cities. Palmyra, the capital of the Syrian desert, became a city in the Romans' time. Not necessarily walled city, but still with buildings and so on. One has to make the effort of going back to the original setting to understand what the text is trying to say. Anyway, I could not, I could elaborate more, but I would be repeating myself. It's just an invitation to my hearers to understand the effort they have to put, because my hearers are not sheep. They have to become the sheep described in the flock of God. <laughs> so let me end on this note that will put me really in deep trouble with everyone listening to me, that the intelligent people listening to the intelligent writer of Scripture are invited by that same Scripture to become dumb sheep as the totally obedient servant of Isaiah. You know, it's taken a couple episodes for this idea of shepherdism to start sinking into my mind. And one of the details that came to mind as you're talking about the shepherd is the beginning of Luke, but the birth narrative, which is different from the beginning of Matthew. In Matthew, you have wise men who come to pay homage to Jesus. But in Luke, it's shepherds who are paying homage to Jesus. You're talking about the shepherds being the leaders. Now you have the shepherds who are bowing down. Can you help understand more what this image of shepherds bowing down to Jesus means as opposed to magi and yeah. Matthew? Let's go back to the setting. Matthew chooses his setting because he wanted to put Gentile and Israelite on the same level. Luke, you know, he has his second volume of Acts, which is very important to remember. One cannot read Luke. This is the biggest mistake of the so-called synoptic thesis, that they took Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and three Gospels alike. Luke is different. There is no synoptic. Each Gospel is his Gospel, and Luke is in two volumes. Now, towards the end, obviously, I'm taking a shortcut here, but this is what I pointed to in my introduction, which is a mini commentary on Luke and Acts, where I show that these shepherds are the church leaders. That's how Paul addresses the leaders of Ephesus, which is his headquarters, by telling them that you are to shepherd the flock of Christ. Very clear. So, according to me, it is these shepherds that had to understand that they had to deal with the church as a flock. That's the intention of Luke at the end of Acts. And I believe that, you know, listening to the entire diptych, one realizes that these shepherds noticed they were in the open and they heard direct the message from heaven, as Paul is said to have done in Acts. You see, all this correspondence is not out there as though these things happen. No, it is in Luke. It is by listening to Luke that 
one realizes what is going on and it stands on its own. It's not that it is here, it is so. I like in this regard, I mean, let me make a jump because all information is important. I like the Roman Catholic tradition where you have the creche, the scene of the nativity. They understood correctly, according to their tradition, where the so-called Feast of Theophany on January 6th is, and they had understood correctly, Matthew, is the opening to the Gentiles. So I remember when I grew up how the shepherds are already there on December the 24th in the crash, but the Magi are introduced on the scene on January 6th. Now the Orthodox do not have this, they don't comprehend what's going on. Well, according to the Roman tradition, it fits perfectly because this is when the message went out. Let me read Acts 20, 28 for my hearers. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And you have episcopi here, episcopes, bishops, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So this is a monumental text where the church is perceived literally as a flock. The way in Ephesians, the church is perceived as a familia of the pater familias. That's why the author makes this extension about Christ and the church. So I went on an aside here, and I thank you for your question, Richard. But again, my answers are a little bit larger because I need to invite my hearers to understand. Unless they know more, they will never know more. And the more has to come from the text itself. So the shepherds of Luke are the shepherds of Ephesus that were on the outside. It's interesting because in Mark, Richard and I on our podcast noticed that when Jesus sends out his disciples in chapter 6, he asks them to carry a staff. And then later down, when he encounters the crowd, he laments that they're like a sheep without a without, shepherd. Absolutely. So it just confirms it's this pattern that appears yes. over and over again. Yes. You see what you did now? You brought an example and you are showing the hearers a pattern. It does not have to be that Luke is writing exactly what Mark is writing and Matthew, although sometimes they do, they get together on some points. But that should come at the end of your explanation. So that's why I like to remind the people that at the beginning, it's better not to do your explanation as though you're preaching in a sermon. You have to do it very quickly and you bring these things together. But Bible studies in the parish are very important because then you keep going at Luke. You may jump on an aside to do what you did with my, but you have to show how the line of thought of the same author is, and that's what I repeatedly try to do in scripture. And this is how I discovered the centrality of shepherdism. It's not that I assumed it. You have to hear the text. You have to hear Psalm 80, verse 1, Genesis 49, verse 24. But again, your point is very well taken. And I believe you and Richard should continue your podcast.
just continue the podcast. That's all you can do. Father, when you were talking about this really important idea in Luke, you know, at the beginning, talking about the shepherds who are bowing down and then at the end of Acts, that you need to act like shepherds and that Paul is saying in Ephesians how they have to act like shepherds. And the question came to me, why does scripture have to speak so much to the leaders that they should act like shepherds, which then makes me assume that they're not acting like shepherds. They're acting like kings. And then it reminds me of the David who was successful as a shepherd and fell as a king. And the juxtaposition then between shepherd, which is how you're supposed to act, and king, which is how you're not supposed to act. Am I bringing these two themes together correctly? Yes, yes. But if you may allow me, as usual, to push and that's why this monotheism is very important. And I discussed why God in Scripture is in the plural Elohim. You know, it has so many facets that a king has always the possibility to summon his council around him. The shepherd does not have always that possibility. And sometimes he has to act on his own. It is he and his sheep. This is an ominous burden. You may not consult. You don't have a library. I mean, now shepherds people uh, make fun about that, that if you go to Syria now to figure out shepherdism, I mean, uh, the shepherds have cell phones. My niece once sent me a picture when they went from Dubai to Oman and they went on a trip on the camels and so on. And she took a picture of the guide uh, who is a Bedouin from the area with his cell phone. So it's not the same thing. We are talking about a shepherd in those times that at least now and then, if not more often than not, he and only he or she and only she had to take the ultimate decision. One cannot even give the example, which I give very often in my class, to make my students understand, meaning the pilot in an airplane. He's like God. It's his decision. But somehow the companies impose a co-pilot with each pilot, even in the smaller jets. Now, to understand shepherdism, you have to imagine a pilot with passengers, not like Charles Lindbergh on his own, but without co-pilot and without telephone possibility to check with the airport. So it is ominous. Remember, episcopy in Acts is in the plural, but when you hear the function of the bishop in the pastoral letters, you have a bishop for each flock. It's his decision, and this is ominous. I hope that our priests would not feel that they are kings, you know. They are pastors. When you're preaching a sermon, the hearers are hearing the words out of your lips on that Sunday. It could be the Alpha and the Omega, because they may not be around and come to church the following three Sundays. Am I Hearing correctly, Luke, yes, because the one talking to these leaders of Ephesus is telling them that he's going away, he's not coming back. And what he's telling them is the letter to the Ephesians, obviously. I think we should revisit that to make sure that the point is understood. I don't like the expression, well taken. Well taken means you agree, that's why you obey me. No, you have to obey and that's the famous story of Genesis 2-3. Do not eat from that tree, lest I'll punish you with death. You don't need to know why. 
but it fits perfectly in a shepherdism setting. And you see that the monastic traditions, all of them, the real monastic, where you have the full obedience to the abbot. Can you imagine telling the abbot, but I am obedient to God? Now, obviously, the abbot has to submit to the will of God. If he mistreats that, the company has the right to dismiss him and so on. They appeal to the bishop. But technically speaking, you have to obey the voice. But Richard, is very important that our priests, especially the Orthodox, because this is their outrage, to think they are kings. They have to be obeyed as kings. They say whatever they want. No, you don't say whatever you want. Your sermon cannot come before or independently from the reading. And how many times I said to you, if you have a laryngitis, just save your people from your silly sermon and let them hear just the reading. I said earlier, if you remember, that what Paul said more in detail to the leaders of Ephesus is written in his letter to the Ephesians. Anyway, friends. Father Paul, thanks very much. Thank you for very it. much, Father. I appreciate always the background that you provide to Scripture and the challenge to actually hear Scripture, not to read it but to hear it. Yeah, and absolutely. It takes a lot of effort. So thank you, Father Paul. Thank you, Father. And don't you ever refer to me as a retired pastor. I am no pastor. <laughs> okay. I didn't say I've never been a pastor. Very important, this actualization. Let me use these words. One has to actualize within the setting. It's like a movie. When Mel Gibson made the movie Braveheart, actually, he had it filmed in Scotland. And I visited that place. It's so impressive. I mean, you can create it nowadays virtually, but the watcher of the movies has to live the story within the setting. And that's what great writers are all about. They write in their office, but they do studies people who write historical romances. I mean, the romance is their own creation, but they go to those countries and they study to have correctly the setting. That's why such stories and movies are impressive. Anyway, thank you very okay. much, Father. Thanks, Father. Love you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.